passage says from Second Kings 4. When the child had grown, he went out one day to his father among the reapers. <clears throat> and he said to his father, Oh, my head, my head. The father said to his servant, Carry him to his mother. And when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap till noon, and then he died. And she went up and laid on him. She laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him and went out. Then she called to her husband and said, Send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys that I may quickly go to the man of God and come back again. And he said, Why will you go to him today? It's neither new moon nor Sabbath. She said, All is well. And she saddled the donkey and she said to her servant, Urge the animal on. Do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God in Mount Carmel. When the man of God saw her coming, he said to Gehazi, his servant, Look, there's the Shunammite. Run at once to meet her and say to her, Is all well with you? Is all well with your husband? Is all well with the child? And she answered, All is well. And when she came to the mountain to the man of God, she caught hold of his feet. And Gehazi came to push her away, but the man of God said, Leave her alone, for she is, bitter, she is in bitter distress. And the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. Then she said, Did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, Do not deceive me? He said to Gehazi, Tie up your garment and take my staff in your hand and go. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. And if anyone greets you, do not reply. And lay my staff on the face of the child. Then the mother of the child said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So he arose and followed her. Gehazi went on, went on ahead and laid the staff on the face of the child, but there was no sound or sign of life. Therefore he returned to meet him and told him, The child is not awakened. When Elisha came to, into the house, he saw the child lying dead on his bed. So he went in and shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. Then he went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, and his hands on his hands. And as he stretched himself upon him, the flesh of the child became warm. Then he got up again and walked once back and forth in the house and went up and stretched himself upon him. The child sneezed seven times and the child opened his eyes. Then he summoned Gehazi and said, Call this Shunammite. So he called her. And when she came to him, he said, Pick up your son. She came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. Then she picked up her son and went out. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This winter we're considering the stories or the narratives of the prophets Elijah and Elisha. And today we come to the story of the healing of the Shunammite, uh, Shunammite woman's son. What we're after this morning, I'm just going to give you, help you anticipate and help us set a certain course, is, uh, is the idea that we can miss the miracle for the miraculous. Now, that might sound abstract or vague or opaque now, and we'll work on unpacking it as we go through the course of the sermon, but I want to plant that idea in your mind, that we have the propensity to miss the miracle for the miraculous. Now, how do we, how do we see that? The woman in our story uh, feels mocked, mocked even by God. She, uh, if we were to go back in chapter 4, which we don't have time to do this morning, we would see that the Shunammite woman is wealthy. And she's a woman, she's a God-fearer, 
And out of her wealth, she has built an apartment, essentially, on top of her house for Elisha when he passes through Shunem, which is one of his major travel routes. And so, in gratitude, Elijah says to the woman, What can I do for you? You've made this nice little dwelling for me. And he makes a couple of offers. He said, Maybe you'd like me to talk to the king on your behalf or the commander of the army. You kind of get the feeling I, I, I play in, you know, with powerful people and can speak to them on your behalf. And the, the Shunammite woman simply says, No, that's fine. And Elijah's servant Gehazi points out that the woman, older in age, is without child particularly without a son, which in, in the ancient Near East was both shame and it was a lack of provision for your, you in your aging, right? to not have a child to take care of you. And so Elijah says to the woman, about this time next year, you're going to have a son. And the woman's reaction is interesting. It occurs in verse 16 of chapter 4, if you have your Bibles. She says, No, my Lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servant." In other words, she says, you've named my deepest desire. I would long for a son. Do not toy with me. Do you really have the authority to grant such a thing? Well, indeed, Elisha did. She conceives about a year later, they have a son. And the story skips a number of years, probably about a decade. We meet the son in verse 18, and he's grown up. He's gone out to the field with his father uh, and the reapers to do work. And while he's out in the field, his head explodes. Uh, he, he falls ill. Something's happened in his brain. And he's sent back to his home where uh, by noon he's dead in his mother's arms. Right? The blessing of God seems to have been stripped from the woman. And she doesn't tell her husband. She doesn't tell Gehazi. She proceeds 25 miles immediately to Elisha. And you can hear the bitterness in her voice as she confronts him in verse 28. Did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, do not deceive me? She says, I, I didn't ask for this. You gave it. And have you given it only to take it away? What is the point of what has transpired here? Perhaps we, uh, we feel the frustration of the Shunammite woman, in terms of uh, feeling as though God would give blessing only to take it away. We could think of the couple who struggles with infertility for years to become pregnant and then to miscarry. We could think of the person who struggles in her career path to land the job uh, that they have always dreamed for, only to be laid off three months later. We could think of the person who struggles with anxiety and fear and by God's grace enjoys a reprieve, a beautiful and peaceful and free six months only to be cast into a deeper and darker place of depression. Does God give good gifts and blessings only to take them away? And the Shunammite woman's question rings loud. I didn't ask for this child. Why in the world did you give it to take him away? As we come to this story, it raises a question that is an important one, which is, how do you read miracle stories? What do you do with a miracle story? What's the point of this story in Scripture? Is the point that we should always expect God to work miraculously outside of physical boundaries and to do astounding things? And that when he doesn't, it's our lack of faith? Or is the, is the point here that we should 
be ready that when someone perishes, we should go and lay upon them and expect that by breathing on them, we might, uh, we might also participate in resurrection unto life. What's the point of the story? If somebody asks you, why is this here? How would you answer that? What is, what is our takeaway from considering the story? It was an interesting week as I was both preparing this and my devotional reading early in the week. I came upon the story of Jesus raising uh, the little girl from the dead that occurs early in Mark. And I started to think about these stories, right? The Jesus healing the little girl, Elijah raising the little boy. Elijah also raises a boy, the first two resurrection narratives in Scripture. And um, I thought, yeah, these are amazing stories. But I thought, uh, I thought of people that I love who have lost children. And I tried to think, what would it be like to read this story from the perspective of having lost a child, right? We know those families. We know the Barnes. We know the Woodfins. And so I thought, as I read the story, I was frustrated because I thought, if I had lost a child, which I can only imagine, these stories would mock me. I think I would skip them. Because here's a story that tells me about the power of God to raise a child when God chose not to raise my child, right, if I had gone through that. And that's a difficult, you know, what is the point of considering this. And if we take a step back from that very particular question about this very particular kind of miracle, we could ask the larger question, what is the point of miracle stories in general? What are the point of miracles? Or put another way, why is the Bible so replete with miracle stories when typically our experience of miracles are so few? Right? The astounding kind of miracles that we read that occur throughout Scripture and occur even with great heightened frequency in the ministry, earthly ministry of Jesus, why does that occur And then when Jesus is actually victorious and raised to the right hand of the Father and is enthroned in power and glory, those miracles seem to diminish or to be turned down in terms of frequency. So I was was troubled by this, and I didn't have a good answer. And so I went to someone who's older and, and smarter and has been in ministry longer, and I said, I don't know what to make of this. And he had a fascinating answer, which was that miracle stories serve at least two purposes. And the other I had, I had never really thought about. The first purpose that a miracle story serves is to demonstrate God's power. Now, to make the point here, it will be helpful to have an actual miracle story to consider. And the one I'd like us to consider is in Mark 6, which is the story of Jesus both calming the storm and walking on the water. And it probably begins in verse six, or chapter 6 of Mark, verse 45 in your Bibles. I'm going to start at verse 46. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea, He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. So, Again, I said miracles are serving two purposes, and of course, from one angle, the miracle serves the purpose of demonstrating God's power. Jesus is who he says he claimed to be. He exerts 
control and influence over the created order. Right? That's in his authority. It's those things are subject to him. But we couldn't say that that is necessarily the whole purpose of the miracle story because it's not the whole purpose of Christ coming to earth. Right? The miracle stories so often do not accomplish Jesus' main mission, which is to save that which is lost, which is us. Right? And often the miracle that he performs does not necessarily claim the heart of those he calls to believe in him. In fact, we see this emphatically in verse 52 in the parable that we just read. Right? Jesus, this parable said, or the story, sorry, not a parable. The story says that uh, they are still without understanding. Right? What's the condition of their heart after having seen Jesus walk on the water and having seen him still the storm? They are still, uh, their hearts are still hard. They haven't been softened or turned to flesh. So the miracle doesn't accomplish ultimately the purpose of, of Christ. Miracles often promise relief of that which we perceive to be most pressing. Right? We pray for relief from physical things or things in our world around us externally to us that need relief or that we desire things to be changed. But that does not necessarily address our primary problem, which Jesus goes on very shortly after our miracle story to address. Look with me at Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 14. Jesus says, or that it goes on in Mark seven fourteen, And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. He's saying this in part to declare that all foods are clean, but Jesus goes on to make a larger point, which we will pick up with in verse 20. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. We see that miracles are remarkable, and they can control physical environments in astounding ways, but they do not necessarily address the real problem, which is the human heart from which evil comes. Jesus says it's not that which is coming from the outside in that defiles a person. Your heart is already defiled to begin with, and that is what, what is the primary source of evil in your life. We realize that miracles may accomplish certain things, but the boy that is raised in our story is raised to die again. Healing our physical needs will not necessarily mean that our hearts will be healed. And of the ten lepers that were healed, only one returned to give thanks. Only one leper was healed in a way that actually mattered. And in this sense, the person I was talking to, she said, miracles, yes, demonstrate in their first purpose the, the glory of God, his divinity in this world, his divinity, right? But they also are a, um, a means of reproof. Well, what did he mean by that? What does it mean that a miracle is a reproof? What he meant was that uh, in some ways we, we focus our attention on the desire for the miraculous, something that is 
spectacular and something that, that alleviates the problem of what is pressing in on us most. Right? And so Jesus comes on the scene and says, yes, that's no problem. I can do it. The blind receive sight. The deaf hear. The lepers are cleansed. The sick are healed. I can control the wind and the waves. I can walk on water. Is there anything else that you'd like me to do? Oh, I'll multiply food and feed 5,000 and 4,000 respectively. Right? I pretty much got the basis covered of what it means to do miraculous things and exert control. Right? And on the one hand, Jesus had to do that. Right? Can you imagine Jesus showing up and saying, I'm God, and people saying, okay, we'd like to see some demonstration of that, and Jesus saying, yeah, I don't, not so much. Right? It's like the kid on the basketball court. He says, you know, I shoot, a, I shoot 100% free throws. And the kids are like, okay, well, we'd like to see that. And he's yeah, I don't feel like it today. Today's not my day. Right? I could do it if I wanted to, but I'm not going to. Right? And every kid on that playground knows that kid is talking nonsense. He can't do what he claims to do. So from one perspective, when Jesus shows up, he has to engage in the miraculous to demonstrate he claims to be, I am. That's a very big claim. And people say, oh, yeah, prove it. And he says, okay, I will. And he does. But that's not the real miracle. Right? Commanding that which God has created into obedience is in some ways small potatoes compared to actually dealing with the human heart. Right? For two reasons. One, commanding and controlling the physical universe for God doesn't necessitate that he hangs on a cross and bleeds. And two, right, performing the miraculous from a divine perspective doesn't involve your participation where your sanctification absolutely involves your participation. Jesus bids you come. He calls you to follow, but you must pick up your cross and follow after him. And that transformation of the human heart from stone to flesh is by far the bigger miracle right, than any of, the, of the, the miraculous deeds that Jesus engages in or Elijah raising uh, the dead. And in that sense, a miracle, in a sense, is a reproof where Jesus says or God says, yes, of course I can do this. That's nothing compared to making you an enemy my son and daughter. The two aren't anywhere near on the same playing field. And yet, do we not get so caught up in desiring the miraculous rather than the miracle that is the transformation of our heart? Just think about, I'll give you two examples, right? One that I see occasionally in, in counseling, which is someone comes in and, you know, um, Joe Bob comes in and says, I'm fighting with my wife all the time. I can't stand my wife. We're not things aren't going well, can we talk? I say, okay, let's talk. And we begin to talk. And we talk some more, and we start to hear his story. And as he's talking, there are a number of connections where, um, you know, his mother keeps coming up. And so eventually I might say, well, you know, your mom keeps coming up. Can we talk about your mom? And suddenly it's a different story. The temperature in the room changes. I said, no, I didn't. I came in here to talk about my wife. She's the problem. I'm not interested in talking about my mom. Well, it comes up a lot. Maybe there's some connection between the two. And Joe Bob says, you know what? I'm good. And he moves on. And it's a funny thing. He says, I'm going to remove myself from this situation because what you're doing is asking me to examine something in my heart that I don't want to touch. I've spent a very long time building buffers around it, and I'm not interested in engaging that pain, number one. And number two, 
He moves out, and you know what happens? This is the really fascinating part. You enter, you know, three, six months, whatever, of really a very blissful period in the house. Because Joe Bob goes home, and he takes his wife out, and he brings home flowers, and he acts as if the, the problem has been solved. Why does Joe Bob do that? Because he has, the problem has to be solved, otherwise he has to go back to try to figure out the problem. And he knows he doesn't want to go there. So if he just changes his attitude, he changes his behavior, right? Not addressing his heart at all, but changes his behavior, then suddenly he can keep mustering on and says, oh, there's, you know, problem solved. So glad I, I did that and worked on it. Now, you know as well as I do, that's not going to last very long. Joe Bob's going to go back to where he was before and perhaps even to a worse place. Right? But notice in that example, that story, our, our propensity to, to not engage the heart, how, easy, how much more attractive and how much easier it is. And right, we can all think of examples too. You know somebody who their life is a mess and what do they do? Well, if I can just get this new, um, this new set of apps and this new scheduling device and I'm going to order my life, and I'm going to change my behavior, and I'm going to read these two self-help books, and then everything's going to be straightened out. And they engage everything but what? Their heart. It's, we're, we're wildly creative and amazingly resourceful at actually avoiding the real problem. And if you don't, you know, I know that example won't resonate with some of you, okay? So let me just ask you about your prayer. When you pray, how much of your prayer is dominated by asking God to deal with things in your external world? Right? Heal this. Fix this. Provide this. Deal with my kids. Deal with my job. So on on and on and on and on and on. Where Jesus has just said your real problem isn't on the outside, it's on the inside. And so how much of your prayers, right? What is the time you spend actually praying God, I realize that my biggest problem is my own heart. Would you please continue to carterize it and cut away my old self and make my heart of stone a heart of flesh? You know that that prayer is rare compared to the other prayers. And that alone should reveal to all of us that we love to see God act in astounding ways to fix the physical universe around us the way we want it. And that's just a great way to avoid him really doing business with our heart, which is hard. It's painful. Right? And yet it's the only way to know, to know freedom. And this is what the story that we're considering this morning points forward to. And Elijah, the Elijah-Elisha narratives are remarkably um, transitional. And it, from one perspective in redemptive history, they're a stepping stone from uh, what comes before to the Gospels and to Jesus, right? Not, not least of which because of the first narratives of, of resurrection. But as you look at Elijah, there are a couple of very funny aspects to the story itself that we need to consider briefly and to ask two questions. Number one, why does Elijah uh, use the staff and it doesn't work, right? The first thing he does is say, tell Gehazi, his servant, take the staff, go lay it on the boy. It doesn't do anything. And then why does Elijah go through this very odd ritual of raising the boy from the dead by laying on him? Number one, what's the deal with the staff? Well, uh, redemptive history is moving on, and uh, the epics changing, and God's grace is becoming more and more revealed. And it's not a bad idea. God's imbued uh, talismans with power in the past. Moses' staff was imbued with power. Elijah's probably thinking time is of the essence. Uh, Gehazi, go. 
take the staff and see what will happen. But those talismans that are imbued with power are not going to be adequate to the direction that God has taken the story. When we start to talk about miracles like resurrection, it requires something more. And so Elijah must come upon the scene himself, and he, he, uh, he knows or is led to, to lay on top of the boy, face to face and mouth to mouth, and you get this picture of, of almost uncomfortable intimacy and, and life being breathed from Elijah into uh, the boy. And now for an Israelite, there's no way you hear that story and you don't think of Adam. Right? The creation of Adam, and the Hebrew says that God is face to face with Adam to breathe life into him. And that's how Adam comes alive. And here you have the representative of God laying upon a dead corpse, breathing life into the boy, bringing resurrection. Now, what's fascinating about these stories and their place in redemptive history is it's, it's from this point forward that Israel starts to ask new questions, which is essentially this. If, if God can resurrect a human being from the dead, if God can breathe new physical life into a dead corpse, what can he do for Israel? Because Israel's story has been going on, and Israel, in one sense, keeps dying and being resurrected in a physical sense, right? Uh, you're unfaithful, you're punished, you repent, we're in good standing, and then you uh, are unfaithful again, over and over and over again. And the question becomes in the prophets, as they think about the, you know, as the Elijah story gets woven into redemptive history, what would it mean for God not to breathe physical life, but to breathe spiritual life? What would it mean for God to make our hearts want to obey him? What would it mean for God to pour out his spirit and bring a resurrection that, that doesn't just lead to another death? Right? And of course, as the prophets look forward, this is what is anticipated and fulfilled in Jesus, where Elijah only has to lay prostrate. Jesus actually lays his life down. And where the boy only receives physical life again, we receive life that is everlasting. Now, we could still find ourselves uh, frustrated right? as we are in this world. And I wouldn't want you to hear me wrong this morning. You might, you might walk away and say, well, Pastor Ryan doesn't believe in miracles or Pastor Ryan doesn't think we should hope for miracles. And neither one of those would be true, that we should pray for them and expect them and look hopefully to them and, and celebrate them when they occur. But my point to you this morning is that we cannot be distracted at only seeing God's power and hoping that the greatest act he's going to do is to solve some of our besetting circumstances physically in our external world Right, so that this life is remedied in some capacity and miss in that myopia or distractedness the grand scheme of God's work, which is actually to make a heart of stone a heart of flesh. And that's why we need to see when someone comes to faith and worships Jesus and four generations of dysfunctional family are put to rest and they raise their children or invest in the world if they're single in a way that hadn't been done before, Right? And that old story of sin and evil ceases. That's ten times the miracle as someone being healed from an illness. So being healed from an illness will only echo in this lifetime. And when sin and death are put away, it echoes for eternity. It doesn't, yes, life can be hard and sad 
and our frustrations can be unending and go unanswered. And I don't want to diminish any of that. And I don't want to say to you either that I know that God's purpose in all of it. I don't. And I think anyone who tells you that is uh, suggested is crazy. But there's a story that I come back to occasionally that encourages me and helps me to try to remember not to lose the miracle for the miraculous. It's a simple story of a boy who was playing in the woods and found a caterpillar, well, found a uh, chrysalis under a leaf. And he took the twig home and put it in a jar and was excited to watch for the emergence of the butterfly from the chrysalis. And so he waits, he rushes home after school and checks it every day. And indeed, eventually the chrysalis begins to crack, but he notices the difficulty, the challenge that the butterfly has to break out of the chrysalis and to emerge. So he takes some tweezers and he very carefully removes the pieces of the chrysalis to help free the butterfly. And after he does that, the butterfly fairly quickly dies. Because for the butterfly to emerge from a chrysalis, uh, the struggle is necessary to press blood into the vascular system of the wings that have never been formed before possess blood. And otherwise, the circulation won't be complete with no struggle, and the butterfly won't emerge. There will be no transformation. It will die. You and I so long, so often long for God to simply swoop in and do the miraculous and to remove the pieces of those chrysalis that feel so confining and are so restrictive and we struggle against. And yet if he were to do so, there would be something lost. And we would not be becoming that which he desires us to be. We would miss the miracle, the hearts of stone being made hearts of flesh which does require that struggle. Let's go to him and ask him to encourage us in it. Father, we praise you this morning. We acknowledge that you, um, you have gone to great lengths to heal our very evil hearts. Would you remind us this morning that it's out of our hearts that all kinds of nastiness pour, that they are very much turned against you and would rebel against you. We thank you that you are in the project of making them new. And so would you help us to be brave and courageous and to come to you. And we pray this morning that you would do surgery on our hearts. Uh, help us to be mindful that we do not worship you simply because you will put all of the physical things in our life the way we want them. But because you are involved in a much greater miracle, uh, which is to make us new. Would you help us to struggle with faithfulness? And would you help uh, for us to emerge beautiful, transform the old self having been put to death, and the new self being something that is free and joyous and glorious in your sight? We ask for your grace in this in Christ's name. Amen. That you would take my place. That you would bear my cross. You lay down. that you've done for me.